millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Sorry about the long delay. Some of it's actually been that we've done a ton of research for this one. Some of it's that we've been traveling and spend the holidays, you know, but we've been doing the research while traveling. So this is a kind of this is a more packed episode than normal. I don't even know if it's going to be longer, but we're going to be talking about Brexit and impeachment and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and all that kind of mayhem. Before we get into it, if you've been listening to the show for a while, we've now been doing this for four years, Eric, as of wow. this December. Yeah. If you're a fan of the show, if you've been listening for a while, we would very much appreciate a review on iTunes, Google Play, so on and so forth. That helps us with rankings, and it just helps us get out to more folks. If you want to contribute a buck to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash reconsider. We are using that money now for marketing. Actually, we're in the middle of a marketing campaign, and I'll probably be appearing on some other shows fairly soon. Indeed. So that'll be fun. So and th- and of course, thank you so much to everyone who already has. And, you know, even since last time we got a few new Patreon supporters and a few new reviews. What a, what an amazing audience. Oh. We love you guys. Yeah. Thank you. So what had us decide to do this episode? Well, it's the end of December here, you know, in 2019 right now. And over December, a lot of stuff happened as relates to. Mr. Trump and Mr. Johnson, who I think it was The Economist had a cover of where they were Tweedledee and Tweedledum uh. um, from Alice in Wonderland. Right. So it's a, you know, it's a very eventful time for those two. And and that cover of The Economist kind of kind of paints the picture a little bit of how, you know, a lot of people feel about these two guys. And so with with all this activity, what we wanted to do today was. I guess sort out a bit of why some of this stuff might be going on and and why people might feel the way they do. I'm be, I'm being a little too gentle about it, but Xander, why don't you take it away? Sure, we're covering the impeachment in the U.S. and the conservative win, uh, Boris Johnson's party, the, uh, the Tories win in the U.K. So let's start with Boris Johnson. Uh, the Conservative Party Tories won a big election in December earlier this month. They beat the Labour Party, which is the opposition and generally seen as the left in the UK, by 43.6% to 32%, and got a majority of seats in the, in the parliament. So not just a plurality, 
which was the case when Theresa May was actively negotiating for a Brexit deal, but a majority. So 365 seats out of a 650-member seat parliament. And that's probably a bit of a surprise for folks. And the fact that they have a majority now, we'll discuss in a little bit, really kind of changes the dynamics relative to when Theresa May was still the prime minister. Yeah, and and I was actually... I was doing a little bit of research for this show and, you know, I was doing the research after the win and I was looking at a lot of articles from before the win in foreign policy, in The Economist, in the BBC, in The Guardian, in The Telegraph, which is even nicknamed the Torygraph sometimes. So it leans a little more right. Nobody expected this kind of victory for Mr. Johnson. And I, I you know, in particular, there was a... In particular, in, in my more liberal friend group, not that all of my friends are more liberal, but in the more liberal part of it, got a big collective WTF, uh, which and it was a much more muted version, I guess, of the WTF when Trump was elected. Um, because what's important about this election is that it's the first time Boris Johnson was prime minister when an election happened in the UK. Before that, he was he was chosen by the party, by an internal party vote to replace Theresa May. But then there was an actual election. The people voted and they picked Boris Johnson's party, you know, for the first time. So it's a little bit of like, oh, is it Trump all over again? And is this like the end of Western democracy? And is everything going to fall apart? You know, and and you know how you know how we how we react, you know, me and Xander to what we call recreational outrage. But you know, there was this there was this deep disbelief that this could have happened. It was something that shouldn't have happened. And how could so many Britons feel this way? How could they, you know, how could they want this? So that's topic one. And in topic two, of course, President Trump has just been impeached, which was, you know, not so much a victory for the right wing. Uh, but there's still a lot of people in the United States who don't want him to be removed from office as of a December 15th poll. About 41% don't want to remove, 50% do, so there's 9% undecided. And of course, it looks very much like the Republican Senate is not going to remove him and that Republicans don't want him removed. And with these, you know, with these like kind of very divisive moments, I think a lot of I think a lot of people are left wondering, you know, how can people keep feeling so differently from me? Right. So for example, how can so many people in the UK vote Tory, you know, Boris Johnson is terrible. How can so many people in the United States not want Trump to be impeached? He's terrible. And then, of course, the other way around, like, you know, how could so many people want him to be impeached? He's great. And, you know, so deep down there are these questions of how is it that so many people in the, you know, in the oldest continuous democracies on earth right now keep supporting stuff that I personally find outrageous. And, you know, this show is about asking a question that I think People should be asking instead, which is why are citizens of these two oldest democracies so very unable to understand why their opposition makes the decisions they do? So that's clearly a complicated question. We can't completely unpack it in an hour, but that's not really the point of the show anyways, because we can dig down below the surface just enough to raise hopefully some interesting questions that will have you walking away looking at these two issues in a new way. So... Do you feel like you've just been perpetually outraged and baffled at how people can make such different choices and political decisions than you, right? Well, 
we're going to approach this from the perspective that we often do, which is, you know, how how can you understand these people? Does it require a certain degree of sympathy for people that you really disagree viscerally with? Or, you know, at the very least, holding two contrasting perspectives in mind at the same time. And it's not easy to do. But if we're going to communicate with folks that we disagree with, we need to at least try to understand where the opposition to our own beliefs are coming from and how these folks could possibly act so differently than us. And ultimately, I think this boils down to the question, you know, do you want to keep being angry, enraged, and frustrated? Is that like a sadistic pleasure that, that you get from politics? Or, you know, is, is that rage really justified? But if it is justified, what can we do about it? So step one in, in understanding where all this is coming from a little bit better is we're going we're gonna to dive into that election. So, you know, why, why did Mr. Boris Johnson's conservatives win the election, let alone by such a wide margin, especially after the conservatives or the Tories struggling so much over the past few years? And I think it's the case that the folks who are so shocked by this have ignored the depth or have not tuned into the depth of Brexit fatigue uh, that's been going on in the UK. And I know this is getting into a little bit of analysis, but after the election, you know, both Corbyn and Johnson and the Liberal Democrats and everyone came out and said, "Okay, turns out this was this election was about Brexit and just getting it done. And, uh, you know, Mr. Johnson saw that and the rest of us didn't. You know, so both parties kind of recognized that there was this fatigue and that Britons were tired of it. Uh, they felt it was inevitable. Um, so that's something that's supported in the polls is at some point after a few years, you know, it's not you're not going to undo Brexit. It's not going to happen. Uh, it's just going to go forward. So we want it done. And, you know, and and Boris Johnson likely inspired confidence that he could finally get it done if he had a real majority. And this could be the case. You know, this could be the cause rather as to why a lot of people voted conservatives that had not voted conservative in, in years or even decades. He got the biggest majority that the conservatives have had since Theresa May in 1987, which means that, you know, un- unlike what I think, you know, many people who really hate Boris Johnson thought that a lot of people who sometimes vote Tory would flee. They actually picked up a lot of people um, that hadn't voted Tory in a very, very long time. And, and that desire to just get Brexit done and get it done well may have been a big cause. So the story majority may, and this is somewhat ironic, because Boris Johnson received such a large majority relative to the Tories' prior number of seats in the parliament, he may actually have more flexibility to reach an agreement with the EU that leaves a post-Brexit UK with closer ties to the EU since he will not be as constrained as Theresa May was when she required votes from more hardliner Brexiteers in order to negotiate because they kind of constrained her ability to make compromise with the EU. Um, that's, I actually pulled that idea from uh, an NBC article. There are a number of diplomats speaking to the journalists who wrote that, and you can check that out in the show notes, but it's a really interesting idea. Originally, Theresa May also needed a really small Northern Ireland party in order to try to get changes done to whatever compromise agreement was in place at any given time. And that was difficult because of all the issues that are dredged up with Northern Ireland. But now, 
the Tories have a majority. So perhaps Boris Johnson can make more progress that was made before. And ultimately, Corbyn's Labour Party really didn't take much of a stand. They weren't the party of Brexit. They were also not the party of no Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn advocated for different things. He eventually was sort of forced into supporting a second referendum just in case people changed their minds. So he was constantly trying to keep his options over without really picking a direction. And Boris Johnson just promised to get Brexit done. Finally, it's just push it through. We still don't know if that's the case because the, the way the timeline is mapped out, there is a deadline at the end of January and in, in the middle of 2020, the UK can still actually ask for an extension of the negotiation period. Supposedly by the end of January, Article 50 will be triggered, triggered, the UK is out of the EU, but then that begins sort of a nego- a, another uh, withdrawal period, a transition period from for which the UK can ask for subsequent extensions. And that just seems to be the thing here. You can always extend, extend, extend. But we're not going to get into all those wonky details in this show because it gets complicated. The point is, it seemed like the British people just want to get this over with. Yeah, and want to get it over with even if they're opposed to Brexit. If there's a sense of inevitability that it's going to happen, it's the kind of thing that, look, you just want to get it done with. And not keep dragging it out because dragging it out has, you know, there've been all sorts of arguments that it's that the, the uncertainty, right. The lack of certainty, the lack of clarity, the lack of timeline has been tough on the economy. It's been tough on Britain's generally, right. It's just been, it's, you know, been exhausting, but it's, it's hard for business to adjust when you don't know what the plan is going to be and when. And so a lot of people, you know, even if they, even if they didn't want Brexit to happen, it's not like the labor was coming out and saying, look, we're going to stop Brexit, right? We're going to stop it dead in its tracks. It turns out, you know, the referendum wasn't even binding, right? So if you if you vote for us, we're going to finally, you know, we're going to kill it and it's going to be over. So your option was, right? Or, or, or maybe a second referendum or it was, look, let's just get it over with and get it done and get it done well. And again, not supporting you know, any particular outcome on the policy, uh, you know, on the on the policy movement here. But there was definitely a much higher clarity in a plan on, you know, one side of the aisle. And it's probably again, we're speculating a little bit here, but it's probably a very good explanation as to why Mr. Johnson did so well. And I think one of the things we need to, you know, as 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 folks who really don't like Johnson are scratching their heads, one thing we need to keep in mind is that Boris Johnson has a 35% positive opinion in the UK, according to YouGov, versus his party getting a 42% vote share, right? So it means a significant number of people who don't like Boris Johnson voted for the conservatives. And so it's one of the things that's worth keeping in mind here is that, you know, you may not, you may really dislike Boris Johnson. Well, it turns out two thirds of Britons really just, you know, or at least don't like Boris Johnson. And yet they decided that, it was the right vote, to, you know, enough of them decided it was the right vote to make to vote for his party. And this is one of those moments where we can see through that disparity, through that gap, that people want different, you know, different parties or different people leading them at different times for different reasons. And, and different people within the country have, you know, different priorities that seem to be what they think is the most important thing for the country at the time. What I just said is not a particularly strong statement, but one of the things we need to keep in mind is that when we're scratching our heads about why someone would make this decision, 
we have to know that there is a plethora of reasons and most people are willing to be flexible about a lot of stuff in order to make sure their top priorities get dealt with. Most people are not dogmatic. Most people are not hardcore, you know, territorial tribalists. And when we recognize that, it it means that we're able to recognize that a lot of different kinds of people are going to vote a certain way. They don't all match the same kind of stereotype. So that's the UK. Let's turn back to the US now, where one of the more headlining issues over the last couple of weeks has been the impeachment of President Trump. Now, we're, we're not going to get into the nits and details of the impeachment process because you can find that all over the place. But, you know, it's going to the Senate now. They're going to vote. He probably won't be removed from office. But there there definitely does seem to have been an uptick in the personal nature of the the attacks on Trump supporters. You know, it's they started as basket of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton mentioned during the campaign. They're being called Nazis, and we're not going to, you know, make a value judgment as to whether or not that's an accurate representation or not, because that's not really what we do here. But there are also a lot of different people who supported Trump in 2016 for different reasons, as is usually the case for any politician that can that can generate enough support in order to win a presidential election, a national election. We want to recognize that there has definitely been a measurable uptick in racist crimes, that that is an un-American thing. We don't support it. It needs to stop. You also can't say that every single one of Trump's supporters thinks that way. It feels satisfying and more explainable if we can just label an entire swath of the population as racist or evil. And the situation, I think, is really more complicated than that. And we're going to try to get into sort of how that is. But, you know, people are starting to wonder, what is the 2020 election going to look like? You know, who's going to win the Democratic primary? Will they will they stand a chance against Trump? Does Trump have a chance to win? And, you know, while a lot of my friends are asking, how can people possibly continue to support Trump? You see the entire Republican Party kind of standing behind him. So what's going on here? And maybe we can start a you know, early with why did he originally get elected? And again, there's many different reasons for many different people. So we can't fully summarize this, but it's worth pointing out a few things that were very interesting about or very unique about Donald Trump's approach to policy and the problems in the United States. And I've got a bit of a thesis that a lot of the issues that he stood out on uniquely and very differently from either Republicans or Democrats the last few decades are issues that Republicans and Democrats often sort of dog whistled about, where they would kind of, you know, they would hint at stuff like this, but then not act on it and not be decisive on it. I don't have any particular evidence that Americans sort of recognized that they were being hoodwinked or something like that or, or swindled, but it felt like a... You know, it felt like there was a bit of a, a bit of a pattern going on. So let's look at a few of these different policies that Trump came into 2016 talking about and also see, you know, what what he's actually done about them. So one of them was, you know, and, and we've talked about all these before. So we're going to summarize them fairly quickly. So one of the things is that Trump was anti, you know, anti free trade agreements or anti trade agreements. Right. Free sounds good. Freedom is good. 
Uh, but he was lots anti- of freedom, yes, large lots quantities of-, of freedom. Exactly. And we talked in a previous episode about tribal flippage that, you know, the Democrats were talking about why free trade agreements were bad. But, you know, then Obama went and tried to sign the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which had been a massive free trade agreement with, you know, a lot of different you know nations along the Pacific Rim. Bernie Sanders was against it. Donald Trump was against it. Donald Trump said, we're out, no deal. And and the the story behind these free trade agreements and why some people, you know, such as Trump and Sanders oppose them is that they're, you know, they're pitched as bad for U.S. labor and good for, you know, good for business profits, but bad for labor because, you know, they're they're lowering trade barriers and forcing American labor to compete with lower cost overseas labor. And that, you know, that that lowers the you know, the wage of the lower and middle class worker in the United States. And, you know, maybe it's the case that this, you know, free trade policy increases net wages. It's more efficient kind of globally, but that the people who are getting hosed by it are those lower and middle class workers in these richer nations. There's also, you know, a story that trade policy in particular with China has been one-sided, done more harm for the U.S. than good while helping a China that doesn't play by the rules, right? So it feels wrong as well. And there's this big deficit with China. So there's, there's been this you know, story, this narrative about trade agreements ultimately hurting you know, US, U.S. labor, especially the people who, who need these wages the most. And whether you not believe it's true, right, economists will, will argue about the details in this, which we are not even going to get into because it's not even trade good, trade bad, right? It's way more complicated than that. But, you know, these narratives are, are convincing to many. And Donald Trump in particular has been consistent about his policy that he came into 2016 saying he was going to do. Right. So he's done the thing he said he's going to do. He's going after these trade agreements to renegotiate them. In a similar vein, there's often been, you know, I, I, I have heard dog whistling about immigration, you know, especially lower skilled immigration being bad for U.S. wages. We've heard it from the left in the past. We've heard it from the right more frequently. And that, uh, you know, that they, you know, you, you all know the thing from South Park. They took our germs, right? Took but herb. They took our germs. And, and, you know, and that's a simplified version of an economic argument about which, about which economists disagree furiously. We have links from a bunch of economists um, or a bunch of summaries about different economists who disagree on whether – High volume over a short amount of time of low skilled immigration depresses lower end wages in the United States. But some economists would say yes. And there are certainly people who believe that that is true. And you can't just say, well, you're obviously wrong unless you have a PhD in economics that could talk about why the other PhDs in economics didn't figure it out. And you did, right? So you can't say that these folks are obviously wrong, but there's this sense, you know, there's this narrative that's pretty strong that low-skilled immigration is hurting U.S. labor. And therefore, who has actually tried to crack down on this um, in a serious way, or at least in a vocal way, right? The president came in saying he was going to do it, and then he's acted on it. And and if that's what people elected him for, they're sitting there saying, well, look, he's doing what he said he would do. And an opposing narrative to that, that that is very prevalent right now, is that some of Trump's initiatives on the immigration side are violating human rights and that mm. the detention centers on the border amount to concentration camps, not concentration in like the sort of death camps, but people are being thrown together in large quantities in small circles. And, you know, that narrative 
also exists. But you have to imagine that when the election comes around, both of those narratives are going to be competing with one another. Right. And then there's foreign policy. So what's what's happened during the Trump administration foreign policy wise? Well, um, when when Eric drafted the notes for this episode, he wrote, you know, Trump's about to be the first U.S. president in their first term in a long time. How long to and then we were going to go look this up to not get into a new war. Yeah. And well, no, we we looked into this and and listeners write in if if you think I'm wrong about any of this. But a quick glance, you go back uh, all the way to the Carter administration. Arguably, he didn't get into a new war, but he sent special forces into Iran. Reagan had uh, an intervention in Grenada, George H.W. Bush, Persian Gulf One, Clinton intervened in Bosnia, and then subsequently Kosovo several years later. That was his second administration. George W., of course, had Afghanistan and Iraq. Obama intervened in Syria and Libya. And President Trump, so far, has not intervened in new places. He's actually withdrawn forces from Syria and Afghanistan in the course of his presidency. And if you look back at 2008, withdrawing from the Middle East was one of the key campaign issues that Obama was elected for. And then he got the U.S. a lot more involved in at least Afghanistan. He withdrew from Iraq, but there's the 2011 surge in Afghanistan and drone warfare surged to new heights never before seen during the George W. Bush administration. So arguably, President Trump has been fairly consistent in terms of doing what he said he was going to do. And there's a lot of complaints that the way he withdrew was irresponsible. And James uh, James Mattis, the former defense secretary, uh, retired voluntarily as a result of that. But you have to imagine, again, that this narrative is going to be exist and be prevalent in the 2020 election campaign. So this is none of this says anything about the effectiveness of the policies or even the effectiveness of their execution. But these are key issues that Americans from both sides of the spectrum have at one time and the other. And then that last 15 years or so been fairly frustrated about and felt like both parties, when you look at sort of the, the traditional leaders of those parties, like Bush, Clinton, and then Bush again, and then Obama, when it came to some of these foreign policy issues, were actually fairly consistent across administrations. So Trump is going to be able to make the case that he's pursuing this foreign policy that is, in fact, meaningfully different from the way parties in the past on both aisles have conducted or have executed their policy, and that this is what he promised the American people when he ran for president, so that he's being consistent. So yeah, if you think about, you know, if you if you imagine you're Trump's campaign advisor, you know, kind of campaign messenger, right? So you know, and uh, what what would he say going into the 2020 election? Well, he said, "Look, I've unlike these, you know, knuckleheads of the past, I fulfill my campaign promises. I continue to fight for American labor." Uh, in better trade agreements. I continue to fight for American labor and better immigration policy. I continue to fight for young American people to not send them overseas and spill their blood for stupid wars, right, that previous administrations have got us into. I'm not, you know, I'm not kicking down hornet's nests in the Middle East that are going to cause more terrorists to come over here and bomb us, right? And so you can you can start to see this, you know, and it's what I said I was going to do, right? And I did it. And so you can start to see this idea emerge that, again, you can disagree with all of this. Or you can say, look, I agree with all the problems that he's saying, but I don't agree with his solutions, right? You can all that stuff. We're not saying to, you know, we're not telling you what to think here, but you start to see this story emerge. And the reason we want to talk about this story 
is that is to help you know potentially get into the space of a you know suburban mom of four who is a Trump supporter or a union worker from Detroit who is a Trump supporter, not the you know Charlottesville racists who are running around with their you know the Confederate flags and such. Those guys we know how you know we we have a good idea of of what they think and why. You know they're racists, right? Let's just let's just be clear about it. You run around waving a Confederate flag in Charlottesville, like you're not you're not doing you know you're not doing so hot um, in terms of the you know in terms of the the nuance brigade, but uh, <laughs> the right? nuance brigade, <laughs> yeah. But if we think about that average American, right? Part of that forty whatever percent, forty seven percent that voted for him, and and most of these people being regular Americans, they have jobs, they have families. Well, they're looking at the economy as well and saying, well, that keeps going up. So that's good. And it turns out, you know, we as I could go on this long rant about how we as Americans have always attributed the economy doing well to our president when it's convenient and doing poorly to the other president when it's convenient. Right. Remember, it's the economy stupid when, you know, George W. Bush, because of the September 11th attacks and also the dot com burst, you know, had a bad economy and we were like, it's totally your fault, George W. Bush, right? So we do this consistently. We say, hey, the president is the person to blame when the economy is doing well or poorly. Well, guess what? Right? Like GDP growth keeps going up and unemployment is lower than it's maybe ever been or something. And the stock market keeps going. And all these indicators, and you know, we just talked about why GDP is not a great indicator, but all these indicators that for decades we have used. And we have blamed on the president for how they're going, seem to be going really, really well. And they just keep going, even though there's, you know, all these predictions that it's not going to go well, maybe because of the, you know, because of the trade war with China and such. And, you know, it's hard to look at people and say, well, OK, this time, please don't associate all those numbers with the president. I know you've done it in the past over and over again, but don't do it this time. That's hard to ask people. So, you know, look, the economy's humming and. Uh, you know, again, not, we're not you. I mean, we've come out and said it before. We we happen to to not think, and and it is certainly the case that most economists don't think that lowering interest rates and cutting taxes and increasing the deficit during a boom is a good idea. You know, it uses doesn't let you keep your powder dry. It could possibly be causing a bubble, so it could actually be terrible policy <laughs> as opposed to good policy. You know, but. But people look at these numbers and they say they keep going up. He's probably doing something right. Yeah, there are long-term consequences to cutting tax rates and fiscal stimulus in boom periods. But that may be a problem that Trump doesn't have to worry about until after November 2020. And when everyone goes to the polls, then the economy is still humming. Because while this has been one of the longest expansions in American history, metrics are still showing positively. So who knows? So you can imagine next year, his supporters are going to make the case that much of what he's often criticized for is policy that is fairly consistent with uh, certainly what he promised people. So what political narratives are working against the ones that you can imagine Trump supporters are going to be using next year? Well, a lot of the Democratic Party has pivoted further to the left. So are people getting on board with the left or are people worried about the left? What do you think, Eric? Well, you know, some people certainly are, are getting on board with it and some people are not, right? And and historically, it's been the case that when you have a party that shifts, you know, there there is resistance to it. 
Again, whether or not that resistance is justified or not, not interested in that here. But, you know, I think a lot of, you know, you may have people sitting there thinking, well, you know, why, you know, these, these folks who, for example, want, you know, better wages for lower class Americans, why aren't they getting on board with the left wing? You know, who, who wants that as well? Think Bernie Sanders, think Liz Warren. Um, and it, it, you know, it is certainly the case that, that we have to recognize that the left has moved further left pretty quickly and that there has been, you know, there has been crankiness and resistance to it. There has been, you know, at least even beyond just the memes flying around, if you think of the, you know, the average, you know, mom and dad in middle America and, and, you know, within, you know, if, for example, within the last, you know, five to 10 years, maybe most of them have heard about transgenderism as different from someone being a transvestite, right? They know like, okay, someone in, you know, there are people in New York or, or weird places like that who like to be transvestites. That's their problem. And now all of a sudden they're hearing about, okay, like, yeah, you grew up thinking there are two genders. There's actually a whole lot uh, and the number is unknown and people get to decide what gender they are by self-identity. And, and if you, if you're not on board with that, you're a, ho- you're a transphobe and they're like, whoa, what? Hold on. I, I've literally never even heard of any of this. And now I'm, now I'm a transphobe. I'm, mm, you know, I'm not there yet. And again, I'm going to keep my, you know, keep my own feelings about this aside. That rapid shift to the left um, or, int- you know, to introduce this brand new idea and then also morally enforce it aggressively can create some resistance among people. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so the left has moved further left fairly quickly, and some folks may be afraid of that. A classic counterpoint to that, of course, to the, well, you know, we're moving too quickly example is that progress has been made too slow to date and that there actually needs to be rapid transition. Otherwise, the momentum towards accepting, for example, since Eric, you used this example, new gender identities, that momentum might be lost and we just fall back to the status quo ante, right? I don't really know how to measure that necessarily. 
Yeah, this is not so much a recommendation. You know, we're we're not creating a handbook for progressive policy thinkers or, or progressive Americans on what to do or not to do. Because of course, the moment we the moment we we do that, someone's someone's going to say, you know, don't compromise with the Nazis, or even more reasonable people will will have criticisms of that, and we don't we don't want to. But it's but as we start to try to imagine, you know, why certain people might be afraid of the left when uh, probably people on the left are like, but we're so accepting and tolerant and. You know, we just want to hug everyone except the Nazis. We want to punch them. You know, what's the what's the deal? Why aren't people on board? I think there's a few other examples that could be, you know, that can help us think about how how sudden this shift can feel to a lot of people who aren't in the middle of it. So one example is that, you know, if we think even about gay marriage, right, we talk about this in Wedge, how rapidly it turned around, you know. I remember I was, I was at, uh, in 2004, in 2004, right? So I was in the state house. I was in front of the state house in Massachusetts. I had a rainbow flag on and I was saying, you know, we shouldn't have a referendum uh, to introduce a, you know, I was with this group of people, right? Demonstrating saying we shouldn't have a referendum to introduce a um, constitutional amendment in the Commonwealth's constitution to make gay marriage illegal. Shouldn't have that referendum, not something we should vote on. And, you know, this was 2004. So this is 15 years ago. And Massachusetts was sorry, that was 2006. That was 13 years ago. 2004 is when they passed the bill the first time to allow gay marriage in the first state in the United States 15 years ago. And, you know, and then it was eight years later that the first president came out and supported gay marriage. And it was Obama after his reelection. Right. So so. He had been publicly against gay marriage before then. Just just keep that in mind, how quickly that has changed. Uh, now, of course, it is it is universally accepted and tolerated by by enough people to be a moot point. So that may be a maybe an argument in favor of, hey, moving fast works. But it's also the case that it is moved in, you know, compared to it, almost any other social issue in the history of man. It has moved incredibly quickly. Yeah, and that's not the only thing in the last decade or so where consensus opinion has changed drastically. So we mentioned gender identity. I mean, 10 years ago, the ability to self-identify your gender is um, far more recognized as as a right that people want to have and something commonplace and accepted. Mental illness is far more accepted and not taboo. So, you know, things like anxiety or depression things that a, lot, a large percentage of the population have. It's far more accepted now, even than it was five years ago. People are, are talking about these issues publicly, whereas even in the recent past, folks would try to hide those things a lot of the times. In the 90s and 2000s, the idea of a democratic socialist president in the US was unheard of. But now you're hearing that all the time, spoken popularly among the left. And then, of course, there's the growing tendency on college campuses for protesters often identifying with the left, so college uh, college age students, to shut down and prevent speakers from appearing on campus that they don't like. There has been some violence. We did a show on this previously. I forget exactly when it was, but you can find it in the iTunes uh, feed. But, it, you know, we talked about 
the movement, the Antifa movement, and the whole punching Nazis thing in a lot more detail than we do on this show. So people who haven't gotten on board with these new ways of thinking yet, you know, may either may continue to see the rapid changes that are going on now in the left as aggressive or dramatic, and they may choose alternatives that don't appear as dramatic, but as, you know, some examples we just talked about, opinions have changed quickly. Yeah, and especially if you're a, you know, a, a right-wing or Republican uh, campaign strategist, you know, there's a lot of hay you can make out of this, right? You can start associating you know, you you could start kind of pulling together all these themes of, you know, you have Antifa folks running around and beating people up and, uh, you know, and, and then college students, you know, like embracing Antifa and and wanting to stop speech and then, you know, or stop, you know, people from coming and speaking. And then maybe, you know, Liz Warren came and gave a talk at that same place and they loved her and you could start putting together like, see, Liz Warren hates free speech and you get the ability to make hay out of all of this stuff. And we've talked before about how people are in these bubbles anyway. So they're only going to see certain facets of it all. And, you know, and and that can end up, you can end up creating a narrative that looks frightening, that looks different, that looks like it's not in line with more conventional American values that, you know, a lot of people grew up with. And, you know, so for those wondering why would someone you know, dis like truly dis, you know, like be worried about or afraid of or resistant to the left other than just brutal stereotypes, you know, that, that might be contributing to it. And of course we want to flip this around a little bit. We've talked about, you know, why might someone support Trump? Why might someone not support the left? We should also be, you know, for, especially for like all the Trump supporters out there that are listening, you might be wondering, well, why the heck wouldn't someone support our president, right? He's, he's making America great again. Economy's doing great, you know, he's, he's, you know, like everything we said, like, yeah, he's, he's doing all that stuff. He's changing forward policy, maybe, you know, in, in my, you know, in, in my opinion, as the Trump supporter for the better trade policy for the better, all that stuff. How could you not like him? And so it's time to put the lens on the other side of the aisle here, Xander. Yeah. So unless you think that there's this mass conspiracy by dozens of mainstream media outlets to concoct elaborate lies about him. And frankly, because he communicates directly with the population so often through Twitter, you don't even need to depend on third-party media sources. You can actually go count some of this yourself. But his lie count, that is lies he's told that are empirically verifiable, either one direction or another, is somewhere between like 513,000. Is that right, Eric? Yes, it is. It is not a typo. It is 13. It's not a typo of 1,300, and I slipped an extra zero in there. Washington Post counts him at 13,000. The Toronto Star counts him at 5,500. PolitiFact has verified 500, over 500 so far in their count. So it does not mean that PolitiFact necessarily thinks there aren't 13,000. It's just what PolitiFact has themselves verified as his lie count. And this is, if you look at, let's just say PolitiFact, we'll use the low end of the estimate here, compare his first term to previous presidents. It is a lot more. <laughs> Right. It is hundreds more. Um, It is, you know, multiples more. And that is that is a meaningful reason why people might disapprove of Trump in a unique way beyond him just being a Republican. Yeah, he lies a lot. Full stop. There, There are the numbers. Right. There are also the revolving doors of advisors and people on his cabinet over the first couple of years. Right. First, you had 
National uh, Security Advisor Flynn, he's gone. Secretary of State Tillerson, he's gone. Defense Secretary, former General Mattis, he's gone. And a lot of these people are now publicly disapproving of President Trump. And that's not something that has generally happened in the po- in the past. If someone's fired or resigns, they kind of just keep to themselves. But now these former high-level folks are speaking out publicly about what they say is a highly dysfunctional administration. Yeah, and if you think about you know, and, and of course, what President Trump does so aggressively is that if someone leaves, he's he's going to be on the attack first. Right. Got to make sure to got to make sure to, to you know, smear this person so that anything bad they say about me is discredited. But let's at least think about Mattis. Right. The, you know, the mad dog. He was a very popular figure, you know, among a lot of Trump supporters in the administration. He's, you know, he was tough. Right. And among, of course, us war nerds, he's the warrior monk. He's a he's an avid reader of history. Someone I you know, someone I, I happen to respect a lot. But this is this is someone that you know was a was kind of a linchpin of the administration and its foreign policy. And he left because he found the administration so dysfunctional. Trump attacked him, and you know he actually he he in his own little you know own little way hit back a little bit. But he's been vocal about you know about the administration not only being dysfunctional, but making a lot of bad foreign policy decisions. And do you as a Trump supporter say, oh, well, James Mattis, he's just terrible, right? Fake news. Or do you listen to that, right? Do you do you start to say, hmm, I wonder why someone that I have so much respect for as a Trump supporter, if you do, if you did, why he would say that in addition to Tillerson, in addition to Flynn. There's, of course, that anonymous book, which I'm sure a lot of people write off uh, from a House staffer that sorry, a White House staffer that uh, goes into pretty gory detail about the way things are um, dysfunctional. It, it is probably the case that if if that is not, you know, uh, all that stuff is very hard to verify where obviously these, these guys who are putting their names on the line about this are breaking, you know, are, are doing something new, right? Which is that that has not happened to previous presidents, which is coming out and saying, look, guys, this is pretty messed up. Then, of course, he frequently breaks with what some people would just say established is established decorum and what other would say are just rules of common decency. You know, for example, by attacking recently deceased Congress people who just disagreed with him, like John McCain. Recall the whole a war hero wouldn't have gotten caught line that Trump was parroting for a while and recall the history of McCain's time in imprisonment in Vietnam was because he was a pilot in the war. He got caught because he was shot down over Vietnam and resisted years of physical torture that permanently deformed him. And as far as we know, he never gave the North Vietnamese any real important information about his unit. Five years in prison. That's a long time. And this is just one example of breaking established decorum. And then, of course, there are Trump's comments about women who he disagrees with and really just women in general that are, you know, to say the least, disrespectful and at times sexist and at times far, far worse than that. Yeah, he, you know. You guys all, you know, everyone knows the quote, whether you're a Trump supporter or not, you know the quote. And and uh, obviously calling it locker room talk, making a claim that he's repeatedly sexually assaulted women and gotten away with it because of his his star power. Like, you know, it's just not a good look. Right. And and sorry, that's that's underplaying it. Right. It's it's the man is repeatedly deeply sexist against women and has claimed that he has repeatedly sexually assaulted women. And then a bunch of women have claimed that he's repeatedly sexually assaulted them. 
And then, of course, Trump supporters have have said, well, that's unlikely that it's probably that they're all lying when the guy has claimed that he has repeatedly sexually assaulted women. So, you know, that is a reason that people uniquely disapprove of Trump beyond him just being Republican. You know, and then and then, of course, we'll, we'll, we're getting in, into impeachment zone here where, you know, Trump admits he, he he's quoted right as admitting that he sent his son during the 2016 election to meet with Russian officials. This is the this is the Trump Tower meeting to get cleared on dirt on Clinton. Right. So he asked a foreign power for help in an election. Now, he didn't get it, which is like they didn't give him the dirt, which is probably the only reason he was not impeached earlier from this. But he said, hey, Russia, can you give me some dirt on Clinton? And he also, of course, abuses power over his control of U.S. foreign policy to try to get Ukraine to give him dirt on his top rival, Joe Biden. And, and of course, we'll get into the, you guys know the details of impeachment. And so it's clear that the president is repeatedly willing to ask foreign powers to give him help in a U.S. election, which is illegal and probably not a precedent that we want to set and something that previous presidents have not done before. Yeah, you said illegal, correct? Illegal. Yes, it is against the law, against U.S. law. So the thing that complicates this is even though Trump asked Ukraine to help him win an election in the U.S., the Trump administration has also been the first administration to provide lethal aid to Ukraine at all. If you'll recall, we did a prior episode on Trump's foreign policy towards Russia. And when Obama was in office, Congress did, in fact, approve lethal aid to Ukraine, but President Obama subsequently rejected that and only allowed non-lethal aid to be provided to Ukraine out of the fear that lethal aid could potentially lead to an escalation in tensions with Russia. So this was only, it was in in 2015 when the Crimea stuff took off, when Russia invaded, and that was only three years after Obama ridiculed his opponent, opponent, Mitt Romney, in a presidential debate for saying that Russia was America's biggest strategic threat. And I went and pulled the direct quote from this debate because it's an example that we like to use fairly often. And President Obama said in this debate, quote, Governor Romney, I'm glad you recognize al-Qaeda's a threat because a few months ago when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia, not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. And the 1980s called and asked for their foreign policy back because the Cold War has been over for 20 years. But Governor, when it comes to our foreign policy, you seem to want to import the foreign policies of the 1980s, just like your social policies of the 1950s and the economic policies of the 1920s. And now, boy, that aged. yeah, and end quote, end quote. Yeah, boy, that aged like milk. Yeah, exactly. So it's not exactly straightforward. Right. So there is one more thing that. Again, this is this is really for those who don't understand why people don't really don't like the guy. Here's one more example. Children in cages. Right. And so it's one thing to have, you know, it's obviously like there are you have to when you have a lot of refugees, you know, all show up wanting to be processed for asylum at once. You need to you know house them somewhere and you can't just let them run around according to U.S. law. Right. According to U.S. law, they have to. This is how it works. So, you know, so you're you're always going to have folks showing up and then they will be in some sort of camp that has a has a cage around it right because you need to keep them there for processing so you know noting that um what has been unique about this administration is a decision to separate children from their families at the border intentionally in order to deter 
people uh, from coming. And, and we've talked about this in a previous episode. There was a, an Obama policy that the Trump administration felt unduly encouraged people to uh, come across because it would take a long time to process them and they'd be let in the United States while they were waiting to be processed because they had kids. And so he said, well, we need to put a put an end to that. And so what we'll do is we'll separate children from their parents and put the children in in you know detention centers alone without their parents. And of course, th- these are children. They have they have no control over whether, you know, even even if you think something bad should happen to the parents, like the kids have no control over this at all. And and the fact that kids are being put in cages, uh, sleeping with, you know, sleeping with these, you know, those like foil blankets people use after marathons and and by the way, separated from their parents, regardless of their age. You know, that is a thing that that people are uniquely upset about versus previous administration's policy. And, you know, I think we're not going to spend the whole time, you know, for probably hardcore Trump supporters have turned us off at this point. But I think the thing the thing to keep in mind about this is that, like, the only things we have listed here are like fairly easily verifiable, right? There is there is stuff where, you know, there there is certainly stuff where Trump gets held to held by certain media outlets to a standard that is different from other presidents. You know, there's there's all sorts of, and this is this is where there are some credibility gaps with some American news media where stuff they criticize him for. You know, and this is all on the internet, right? Criticize Trump for doing the exact same thing that Obama did. Or Bush did. But this is all, you know, what we just listed is easily verifiable stuff that if you're sitting there wondering, well, how could someone, you know, possibly really, really dislike our president and really, really want him to be gone? I don't understand, you know, beyond, of course, the fake news. These are easily verifiable reasons why Americans might really not want the guy in office. So if someone is sitting here saying, you know, I can't understand why someone wants to come after Trump so much. This may be reinforced by the the idea that a large portion of the Democratic Party have essentially telegraphed publicly for years now since Trump became president that Trump's a dictator, he's a Nazi, he's a fascist, whatever term you want to apply, and that he must therefore be resisted explicitly at all times and through extraordinary means, not just votes in Congress or through the courts or in the 2020 election. So this means if you don't think that's true, that is that Trump is not a Nazi, not a fascist, not a dictator, then it starts to look like the Democratic Party has just been for years looking for an excuse to get rid of President Trump because they hate him so much. And we have a few examples that we pulled up here. Yeah, so there's, of course, the famous, gosh, I forget who said this and I just didn't bother looking it up because it's so well known, but it's the, you know, impeach the mother effer in the 2018 election when there was a, you know, when the, the, when Congress took control of the house and a lot of young, you know, fresh, you know, freshmen, right. Obviously came into, uh, came into office and basically like day one, someone's like, all right, we're going to impeach the mother effer. And you're like, Oh boy, for what crime? Oh, we don't know yet. Okay, fine. Uh, but he's definitely going to get impeached, right? And and a lot of, you know, you think about it, a lot of people on the internet go like, yeah, 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 impeach him, right? And if you're if if you're sitting there with your constitution hat on, it's like, well, he has to commit a high crime or misdemeanor. So what's the high crime you want to impeach him for? Oh, right. You want to impeach him because you hate him, right? And you hate him because you hate his policies. And so you want to impeach him. And that, you know, that's not how it works, guys, right? But but even just that little thing, that, that one person really excited, and then, of course, all the people on Twitter getting excited about it, too, you know, 
openly declaring an intention to impeach the guy and people marching around with the intention to impeach the guy until, you know, without a clear high crime that they want to impeach him for means that means that you can very easily tell a narrative that that they don't care about the process. They just want him gone. They lost the election. They don't think they're you know, they don't think they can win it again. So they're going to they're going to abuse the impeachment process to to get him. So for many people, the impeach him since day one narrative creates a credibility gap and end of thought there. And we want to be fair because the president did pretty clearly commit a high crime when it comes to the Ukraine stuff. He abused his presidential power for a quid pro quo that um, exchange that military aid would be delayed. And again, that was the lethal military aid would be delayed to the Ukraine unless Ukraine investigated Joe Biden for dirt. So if you're requesting aid from foreign power for support in a domestic election, that is abuse of power. So even if you think Biden should be investigated, that's what all of these independent investigative bodies are for. And Trump didn't use them. He directly reached out and tried to pressure the president of uh, Ukraine to help him. And that's a violation of law. So if you're one of these clear the swamp people and think that, well, we can only trust the president and the other parts of the government can't be trusted, then essentially you're advocating for the president doing things that he doesn't have the legal power to do just by himself. Right. And if you're advocating that, well, the president should do things that are well outside of his legal and constitutional authority because he's the only one that can get them done and you know, the, the lobby, the lobby damned. Now you are actually advocating for him being an authoritarian dictator by definition. So, you know, so if, so, so you you kind of can't have it both ways, right? You can't say that Trump definitely isn't a dictator. Why would you call him that? And then say, well, he should ignore the law and ignore due process and just do it himself. But kind of back to, back to the, the kind of the credibility problem and, and the, you know, this, this impeachment skepticism that people might have where, you know, again, sit, sitting from where we are, it seems it, it, it is the, the evidence seems overwhelming that the president committed a high crime and it's that is an impeachable offense. Um, I won't say should be or shouldn't be. But the skepticism, you, you might be wondering, you might be sitting there wondering why on earth aren't people on board with wanting to impeach the guy? This this, you know, desire to impeach him since day one creates a lot of space for a narrative of. Look, they were just waiting for a technicality, waiting for an excuse, right? Looking for anything they can can do to do it. Now they're now they're shoving it through. The other place that this comes from, actually, interestingly, is how the Mueller report was again by some Democrats, some of the time, certainly not everyone, was hyped. And you know, it seems it seems that the Mueller report itself, or that the Mueller investigation itself, was quite you know, quite unbiased and, and straightforward. And, but the, the problem is the, you know, I'm sure everyone knows the Trump is a puppet of Russia and a puppet of Vladimir Putin argument, right. Or, or hypothesis, or I guess, frankly, conspiracy theory, right. It's a, it's a theory that there is a conspiracy among, you know, a lot of people to, to have Trump be puppeted by Moscow. You know, and this was this was freely bat- banted about. You've heard it. You may have said it. It's certainly fun fun to say when you really don't like a guy. And because this got so popular, it meant that there was this you know there's this hype that the Mueller investigation is finally going to prove it. Right? Finally going to prove that Trump collaborated with Russia to have Russia 
you know, saturate, you know, like send, send the bots, which were, you know, involved with, with uh, posting on Facebook and such and, and otherwise help him get elected in exchange for him being a puppet of, of Russia. And then we've got him, right? And well, guess what? Uh, the Mueller report showed a lot of, a lot of bad stuff that arguably the president, uh, the, sorry, the, uh, that Trump at the time before he was president shouldn't have done, but it didn't show that. Right. It didn't show that he is a puppet of Russia. It didn't show that that they collaborated on Russia's actions. And what that meant was it fizzled. Right. There's this, you know, there's this line I love from The Wire. It's TV, you know, it's TV show about policing in Baltimore. And it said, when you come for the king, you best not miss or you better not miss. And by placing so much hope that we're definitely going to find this terrible thing and we'll finally get get rid of this guy because we'll have found this terrible thing. There was this like deflating moment afterward where Trump got to run around and say, see, no collusion, no collusion. And the deep hope that the guy is guilty of something as opposed to, okay, I want to see what this, like, what is the objective way of looking at it? I want to see what this investigation reveals uh, because it is, you know, the the allegations are concerning and, and based on the outcome uh, or based on the information, we should want a certain outcome. It was, I want him to be guilty. I want him to be a puppet of Russia. I want all this stuff to be true because if so we can definitely get rid of him, right? That creates a credibility gap. And it means that it's much harder the second time within, you know, with this in, or sorry, it, it allows space for a narrative that, well, we're just trying it a second time again. We want him to be impeached. We're taking another swing at it when we'll keep doing it until we can get rid of him. So let's flip this one more time. Why are the Democrats so angry, so mad with the Republicans in this impeachment process? Well, it's kind of the idea that the right seems like it's going to support Trump no matter what, no matter what evidence is presented. And Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell have both both been explicit that they have no interest in essentially doing their constitutional duty to be impartial impartial jurors during these impeachment trials. And that's not good. Right. So it would be te- it would be technically breaking your your oath of office um, in order to back your guy. Right. So this is this is and it's probably even more clear that these two senators, at least. Have have declared openly that they have no interest in following their constitutional duty or, or due process. They're just going to back their guy. And if that is the case, that's, you know, again, you're. you're violating your constitutional oath. And, and that is, you know, if you're a Republican sitting there wondering why are, you know, why are the Democrats withholding the articles? Why are they so angry with us? You know, they're the ones who are biased. It, it's, uh, it is certainly the case that the Republicans have at, some of the Republicans at times have not shown a desire to be impartial. So there's this whole other path we could take about kind of this breakdown of, of a sense of, objectivity in these processes, but we won't right now. What we want to do with all these examples is give, you know, hopefully you've listened through the end and some of this stuff has kind of stung and some of it has felt really resonant and some of the stuff has been a little bit eye-opening, but what we want to do is give you a bit of a look into different people's, you know, potentially different people's minds or, or places where they're coming from to better understand why the heck they could disagree with you so much. Yeah, ultimately, people have a lot of reasons for voting the way they do. So what appears to be happening 
is, you know, some folks from certain tribes are taking the worst stereotypes, some of which may be accurate sometimes, but definitely the worst version of the other side, applying them to the entire other side that voted a certain way. So Brexiteers all become racist or some sort of ignorant form of nationalists that's going to wreak havoc on Europe. All Trump supporters are Nazis, and people who oppose Trump are anti-speech socialists. And what happens then is the reflex to to defend your side can often lead people to defending sort of the worst version of their own tribe. So not throwing them under the bus and not acknowledging that no idea is so pure that fools will not follow it. They just sort of reflexively defend who they voted for and what that entire tribe represents. Yeah, so this the risk of having no interest in understanding where others come from and the risk of having no interest in seeing some of the faults in our own tribe, right? Or some of the bad actors or bad apples in our own tribe or the failures of our own tribe is that ultimately by becoming so obsessively dogmatic and starting to believe the BS, starting to believe the propaganda that we're always good and they're always bad, right? And their position is, is unthinkable and our position is, is obviously correct there is a risk that we can become the very or start to become the very monsters that the other side thinks we are. And this is less about, Oh, you have to go to the other side and and understand them and debate them, which of course we advocate for, which is somehow controversial, but, but this is more about giving yourself the space to get a little bit better at understanding reality for what it is rather than what you want it to be. So with that, Dear listeners, thanks for joining us on this on this kind of wild ride. Don't let the pundits or the news outlets, you know, or the politicians or sometimes your own, you know, the little worst part of your own brain do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Andrew signing off. We'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.